by defining that. A, a benediction, if you've been here a while, you know we get up at the end of our service, either myself or Chris will get up and say, please receive the benediction. Um, it's not a word you've probably ever used in any context in your whole life, uh, unless you are a pastor or something. But it's a, it's a church word, and it's, it's a church word that means, it comes from the Latin word for blessing. And the idea of a benediction is that at the end of a service, at the end of a gathering of, of worshipers, the, the final thing that we should take uh, from, into our hearts as we leave and go into the rest of our days, our week, uh, between Sunday services, is this blessing from Jesus, uh, by his, from his word, that encourages our hearts to carry on through the week. And so there's a number of benedictions in the, in the scriptures themselves, Old and New Testament. We primarily focus on uh, about four or five in the New Testament. Um, but we read these, these blessings over, over our hearts uh, because life is difficult, and we all know that. And we need the reminder that as we're walking out of this, this room today, we're not leaving alone to face the world without the help of Jesus. And so that, these words are meant to help us remember that and think about that. And so that's what a benediction is. If, that's, if this word is totally unfamiliar to you, that's probably normal. Most of us are unfamiliar with these kinds of words. Um, but that's what it means. It means a blessing, and it means it's, it's a way that we can send our service out um, with that in mind. Uh, I don't know how many churches you've been a part of, but those churches that just kind of end the service with a, a whimper feels kind of sad to me. So uh, we, we like to go with these readings. Um, we've done that for forever from the beginning of this church and we've, we'll continue to uh, hopefully for forever because I think it's a great way to, to end our service. But as we walk through this passage today, we're in, we're in Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. Let me read these words. They're familiar to you if you've been here a while. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So those are the words that we would read at the end of our service and will read today uh, as well. Um, and, and yet, I think sometimes these words are familiar to us in this church, but we've not really taken the time to think through or teach through why they matter and what it's actually getting to and what it's teaching us. And so to, to understand these verses, we, we, we first have to realize they're, they're not like isolated by themselves. They are a part of a larger passage. Really, you could maybe argue that they are the conclusion to the first half of Ephesians before Paul gets into the practical instruction of, of the gospel. The first three chapters, he lays out the, the beauty of the gospel, the doctrinal truths of the Christian life, and this is kind of that transitional point where he starts to go, okay, now that we know the gospel, how do we live in that from chapter four through six? We, we could maybe make that point, but I think at, at the very least, it's, these two verses are connected to the section just prior to them, verses 14 of chapter three through 19. And those are gonna be the verses we primarily focus on today. I think um, that looking at how Paul concludes this section of just beautiful gospel doctrine before transitioning into 
the beauty of gospel culture in the letter to the Ephesians. We, we need to, we can appreciate this benediction more fully as we read the context of the whole paragraph before it. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians 3.14, here's what it starts with. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. Okay, well, let's just stop there. So right now we're seeing the Apostle Paul articulate for the church in Ephesus what he's praying for them. He's, he's praying for this church, and he's really not just praying for this church. I think this is God's heart for all Christians everywhere in every place. But Paul's laying out for this, this church in Ephesus what it is that he's asking God to do in their lives. And he says, it's for this reason that I bow my knees before the Father. So he's going to God the Father in prayer here, humbly upon his knees. Now that's, that's interesting because in, in Judaism, which was the tradition in which Paul came from, he was a Jewish man who was a Pharisee by training and uh, quite self-righteous before Christ got a hold of his heart. Uh, the, the Jewish people didn't typically pray with their knees bowed. Uh, they still don't. In fact, for the most part, they pray standing up. You see this at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem even to this day. Um, the typical posture of Jesus as he prayed was to stand and look up to heaven. Whereas today we bow our heads and sometimes bow on our knees. And there's nothing right or wrong about either of those postures. I think both postures teach something. Um, but but for, for somebody in Paul's position to say he's bowing his knees before the Father is, is a particular emphasis on his humility before God. That he's desperate for God to do something in, in this. And so he's going before the Lord with a humble posture down low. And, and so he's saying that he's praying for them and he's going to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And he just sort of tosses this, this reality out about God being the one who establishes family. And that's that's kind of neat, I think, on Mother's Day. We didn't really plan for this to be the Mother's Day sermon, but there you go. Your family, um, let me just put it this way, with all of its quirks and craziness, is the family that God puts you in. And you may love that or you may hate that. But, but it is what God has done. Every family in heaven and on earth is named through the Father in heaven. And, and he has established you in your biological family and in the family of God as well. So from, from there, Paul then begins in verse 16 to lay out what it is he's asking God the Father to do. Okay, so first... Look at verse 16 and the first half of 17 with me. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, so this is what he's asking God to do, to grant you to be strengthened with power through, the, through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the first prayer, first thing that Paul is asking God to do for the church. And what is it? 
it is, he's praying for their spiritual strength, that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit. He's praying for their strength. And so the main idea here is just as somebody who is physically ill or physically injured needs to be strengthened, whether that be through, through rest or through medicine or through whatever other means we can be strengthened physically so that we can take in all that life has to offer us, so do our souls need to be strengthened. Our spirits need strengthening. God's children need to be inwardly, spiritually renewed and strengthened to, to have all that God would have for us in this life, both the blessings and the challenges. And what Paul is really, I think, praying for here is for perseverance, the strength to continue carrying on in the gospel. Um, I'm amazed at how often the Bible talks about perseverance. This is not a topic we talk a lot about, I don't think, and I think we need to. Um, we, we need to recognize that the call of God is for our salvation, but then our following him through life requires his grace to strengthen us so that we persevere. He, he's asking God to strengthen the Christians because the world is difficult and our lives are hard and it's easy to be tempted to throw in the towel. And, and I think that this, this idea of strength is, is really related to perseverance, the ability to carry on and keep going forward with Jesus. But, but the key here is this, that we are being strengthened not in our own strength, not in our own physical or spiritual ability, but in the strength that God supplies. Notice here that Paul gives two sources of this strength. The first is in verse 16 at the beginning, that according to the riches of his glory, the first way that Paul says that we can tap into the strength of God is because God is a God who supplies through the riches of glory that strength to us. He has no shortage of, of strength for his people. He has a wealth of spiritual blessings that Paul has already so gloriously articulated in chapter one of this, of this letter. All the things that God has done for us through his son, Jesus. And it is this wealth uh, that leads to um, God's generosity that strengthens us. It is the riches of his glory that you may be strengthened with power. Think about it this way. It, it is, um, it's really futile in so many ways to go to someone who has nothing, like a, a pauper would be the old-fashioned way of talking about this, a person who has nothing, to appeal to them for help because here's the reality. They may have all the heart to want to help you. They may have all the desire to want to help you. They, they may actually really be motivated to help you, but if they have nothing, they don't have the resources, they can't help you. But that's not who we go to when we ask for the spiritual strength from God. We're going to a God who has the riches of glory, he not only has what we need, he is also eager to give this to us. And he does so through the second agency of these, 
of this strength, which is his spirit. Look at verse, the end of verse 16. That you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The other element of the strengthening is the agency of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who orchestrates the wealth of God's strength and freely gives it to us according to the scale of his riches. And we are renewed in our inner being for life and we grow as we walk with Jesus, we grow stronger and stronger spiritually, even as our bodies grow weaker and weaker. This is one of those, those difficult realities we have to face in life. And this is what Paul presents to the Corinthian church. I think it's in 2 Corinthians. He talks about the, the, the reality of our bodies becoming weaker and weaker, and yet our inner being is being renewed day by day. So as Christians grow physically through life, right, we, we go, we start as helpless babies that can't do anything for ourselves. Total weakness. We grow progressively through life. We hit our peak somewhere in our late teens or early 20s, maybe mid-20s. And then we just start the slow, depressing decline from there all the way to death, right? Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Um, <laughs> but that is how it is. That's the way it works. We all know this. But the Christian life is, is, while that is all happening physically to us as we grow in Jesus, whenever at whatever point in life we meet Jesus, we are only on an upward trajectory. We never hit a point where we start to decrease in spiritual blessings and we get all the way to glory and we will be made like Jesus. That's the good news and God wants to strengthen his people. Now, at the same time, I should acknowledge this, that there's a place in the Christian life for weakness, right? We talk about strength and the importance of strength, and that's good and right. There's also a place for spiritual weakness in that we acknowledge our absolute need for him. We can't save ourselves. The Christian life has to be an acknowledgement of all the strength that we have comes from him, not from ourselves, and so we sort of wrestle with the tension of weakness and strength in unison. Weakness, knowing we cannot help and save ourselves. But the strength that God gives us is what carries us through. Okay, so the first thing Paul prays for is strength. The second thing, look at verse 17, second half of 17 through the first half of 19. It says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The second thing that Paul prays for for the church is love. He prays for love. He prays this, this prayer in a couple, from a couple angles that we'll look at. He first begins by saying that you being rooted and grounded in love. So this is a prayer for the lifestyle of love to be on display in and through Christian community among all the saints, as he says, um, I think at the, uh, yeah, 
yeah, to comprehend with all the saints. So the mentality that Paul has here is the community of love in the church, this lifestyle of love that exists among all the saints. And Paul, to explain this to us, uses a couple of metaphors. He actually mixes metaphors a bit here. Paul tends to do that. And, it, and he does that mixing of metaphors just to give us a well-rounded understanding of what we're talking about. He begins by saying, rooted and grounded in love. So rooted is a metaphor from agriculture and grounded is a metaphor from architecture. And, and both of these uh, get to the same point. They, they exist parallel um, and they work together. So to be rooted in love and to be grounded in love is really getting to the same thing, though he's just using two different metaphors. The first is to think of a tree, to draw our minds to the agricultural world, that trees, as they send their roots way down deep, they are able to withstand massive amounts of wind and, and storms. And they stay, if they're healthy and deeply rooted, they stay put through what all that the world, the natural world can throw at them. And so he's saying that we are to send down our roots of, of our lives deep and wide in the soil of love. And then this idea of being grounded is a, is a metaphor from architecture building. And there he's basically just saying simply what we all understand. If a building has a, has a deep and solid foundation, it's going to be able to, again, withstand that which happens to it. And if we are properly rooted and properly constructed on the foundation of love, the point is, is that nothing's going to shake our lives ultimately, not to the point of being destroyed. And there, there's a pastor by the name of Donald Barnhouse who was, who was a pastor long ago, a while back. And um, many years ago, he pointed out something about love that I thought was helpful. And he's talking outside of the context of this passage. He's talking about the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians 6, or Galatians 5, excuse me. And he talks about how love being not only the first fruit of the Spirit in that list, but that he actually says that it's the key to all the rest. Let me, let me read what he says. He's, Donald, uh, Donald Barnhouse said, Love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering, or our modern translations say patience, is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. And self-control is love holding the reins. I thought that was really helpful because it gets to the point that without love, there are no fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit gives us love and that then trickles down into all these other attributes. We must be rooted and grounded in love with all the depth uh, that these metaphors point us to and help us to understand. So having prayed for then the lifestyle of love in the church, Paul then turns to the second dimension of love in this passage, which is the love of Christ towards us. He says that you may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth or width, the length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So having prayed for us to love each other, Paul then turns to help us understand how much Christ loves us. And he's using these dimensions to help us understand that. Right? He's using the dimensions, this three-dimensional picture of uh, width or breadth, length, height, and depth. And in all of these dimensions, we learn something as we think about them, about the love of Christ. We learn that Jesus' love has a breadth or a width that is wide enough to embrace the whole world. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The love of Christ is wide, wide enough to embrace the world. Jesus' love is long. It has length. It's long enough to last forever. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon gets us here when he says it is the love of Christ is so long that your old age cannot wear it out, so long that your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it, Your successive temptations will not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Jesus' love is a love that's long enough to last forever. We see that Jesus' love is high, and it's high enough to take sinners to heaven. 1 John 3, 1-2 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. The love of Jesus is high enough to take sinners to heaven. And then there's depth Jesus' love is deep enough to bring Christ down to the very lowest reach for sinners. One of my favorite pastors, uh, Ray Ortland, um, wrote in a commentary um, a number of years ago words that have kind of stuck with me. And I pull, I've read them a number of times here because they've, they've meant a lot to me. But you maybe have heard this, maybe you haven't, but it's worth reading. Um, Pastor Ray says this, how can we jump out of a hole that has no bottom? And that really is our situation, right? As sinners. There is only one way, he says. We hear the gospel again, that Jesus Christ loves you, not the rehabilitated you, but the real you down in the abyss, and he welcomes you to himself. The love of Christ is so wide and so deep and so high and so long that that we will always be reached by him and we will be saved by him and we will be embraced by him. To understand the love of Christ is to then give us what we need to love each other. We can't love each other without understanding how much we're loved. And then 
Paul prays for a third thing at the end of verse 19. He says the the third thing he prays for is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, that's a staggering thought. He's, He's praying for fullness and that we would be full of the fullness with which God himself is filled. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? How could we possibly understand that? Uh, and I, I think there's a couple of passages that help us understand some of what Paul's getting at. It's in Colossians, actually, which is, some would argue, is the companion letter to the church, to, to the letter to the Ephesians. They're very similar letters, but they have slightly different uh, nuance. Um, in Colossians, Paul uses this idea of fullness a couple of times. One is in verse 119. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says, For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. So how in the world does this, I, this prayer for fullness in Paul's mind work? Um, I don't know that I have a, a perfect answer for this, but I, I, I just want to point you to an analogy. I, when, when Crystal and I were first married, we, we moved uh, to North Carolina and uh, we hated it. So we came back as quick as we could. Um, but we lived only a couple hours from the ocean. And so we would go a couple times a year to the ocean. We're not beach people, obviously. No one wants to see this at a beach. Um, but, but regardless, we're not beach people. We never really enjoyed it. But we'd go because, you know, you're that close to the ocean. So think about this. You've probably been to the ocean. If you haven't, you've been to one of the Great Lakes, I'm sure. So massive, massive body of water. You stand next to it and you're this tiny speck in this, this expanse of water. And Think about picking up a little sand pail that you bring for your kids to play in the sand, this tiny little plastic bucket. And you put that bucket into the ocean. And as the ocean fills that bucket, it is filled with the fullness of the Atlantic Ocean. And yet, it would be ludicrous to say that that bucket contains the whole ocean. It, it can't. So, what Paul's getting at here, I think, I'm going to read some of this because otherwise I'll confuse myself. Um, think about this. Um, Christ, what Paul's saying here is that Christ, being infinite, being God, is able to contain within himself that which is infinite and that which is all of God's deity. But whenever one of us, who are finite little creatures, puts the tiny vessel of our life into him, we instantly become full of his fullness, just as that bucket becomes full of the fullness of the ocean. But here's the difference between us, and this is where the metaphor breaks down. The bucket can't grow, but you and I can grow. And as we grow in Christ, we grow progressively through our life as we walk with him and are more and more sanctified through this life, we grow to be able to hold more of him. And the more we receive of him, the more we can yet receive. This is going to be, I believe, our, 
our experience for all eternity. We think about eternity often through the cartoonish picture of being on a cloud with a harp and a diaper, and, and that's, that's uh, probably closer to hell than heaven. Um, but the, the idea of being in eternity with Jesus for that incomprehensible amount of time is probably because it's going to take us all of eternity to receive the fullness that Jesus is. And I don't know how all that works. I can't, I probably am even saying it wrong even now. But this, this idea that Paul is praying for us to have the fullness of God is something we can begin to experience now and will continue to grow in through eternity. So, okay, we haven't even gotten to our benediction passage yet. We just got to it. And I, I promise I'm almost done. I really am. Um, I feel like all of this first paragraph, what Paul is praying for, when you think about what he's praying for, we may be tempted to, to think to ourselves, well, that's impossible. What you're asking for, Paul, is that we would uh, actually be, have the strength to carry through this life unscathed to Jesus. Well, I can't do that on my own. Neither can you. He's asking for us to live and embody a lifestyle of love and comprehend that love that Christ has for us. How can any of us comprehend the love of Christ? He's asking for us to experience the fullness of all that God is. Again, all of this seems so unattainable. But I think that the reason Paul goes where he goes in verse 20 and 21 is because um, it does seem impossible. And I think when we realize what he's saying, we, we get the point. He, verse 20 says, Now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is doing is he's pivoting to this reality that everything he has asked for is impossible if God is not the one to do it. But what we go to, when we go to God in prayer, we are going to a source that is able to do these things and is willing, as we said last week in our benediction passage, it's not just his ability, it's his willingness too. And what Paul says is that this God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, which is astounding because what Paul is asking and thinking seems already impossible. But Paul is saying God can do that and God can do more than that. And it's because of his ability that, that Paul is able to pray boldly for God to work in the lives of these Christians. I, I'm, just a, I'm just struck by the optimism that Paul has as he prays. I, I don't know that we're this optimistic. Maybe you are. I'm not. I know I'm not. But, but let's, let's never, I think the, the conviction that comes to me here is that I'm so quick to assume that what I'm asking for can't be done or won't be done. 
And, and so what that, what that mentality can breed is, well, I'm just not going to ask for things I think are too far-fetched. <laughs> but let's never be convinced of that. Here's the fact. We pray for whatever is on our hearts. God wants us to pray with all of our anxieties cast upon him, with all the things that we fear and dread brought to him, with all of our hopes and dreams given to him. And we also have to recognize that God does what God wants. He's not a genie in the bottle that we summon whenever we want something from him. We have to acknowledge that God knows it all. He's aware of it all. He has far more information than I have. And it may very well be that what I'm asking for is going, if it came, if it came to fruition, would actually do me more harm than good. I have to be humble about that and acknowledge it. That doesn't mean we don't ask with open hands knowing that God can say yes or no. But I think what we're seeing here is the optimism that we ought to have as we approach the throne of God. As we come to God, we should be coming to him with this mentality that he is able to do far more abundantly than all I ask or think. And that's a lot, I think. Most of us have a pretty wide imagination. And yet God is capable and often willing to do far beyond that. Let's, let's be convinced here that if we ask God for his help, he will help in the best way possible. Maybe not in the way that our little minds are imagining him to do so, but in far better ways. So to wrap all this up, as we read these verses to close out our service, we do this as a way to remind you and ourselves as those who read that God is able to do all and more than we need. And I also think it's vital that we recognize that anything that God requires of us, he supplies for us. Anything that God requires of you, he supplies for you through Jesus. And he supplies your need through spiritual strength and through helping us comprehend his love for us and by filling us with his fullness. And he does those things in greater ways than we can even imagine. And so as we hear these words in just a few moments after we sing and conclude our service, let's be reminded that we have a God who loves us beyond measure and will do for us far beyond what we can even imagine. And he does this purely out of love through his spirit in our lives. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the fact that you are the God who is able to do far abundantly beyond what we can imagine. And, and Lord, it's hard for us to fully wrap our heads around all of that and what it means. Um, but we pray for your help now as we uh, respond to you through singing, as we uh, go to the table of communion and eat and drink in remembrance of you and remind our hearts of the love you had for us that brought you to the cross, the love that surpasses all things uh, brought you to the cross for us. We humbly uh, remember that today. And we pray that we would leave this place knowing, convicted, and, and encouraged 
that you are able to do far more than we can imagine. And so would you, would you spur us on, God, to actually ask you for things, knowing that it is your good and perfect will that will come to fruition. We pray for these things, and we ask for the remainder of our service that it would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to take some time to sing together a few songs in worship and response. Um,